As you heard, my name is Dave Baker. I'm from Huntsville. I'm a member of Summit Crossing Community Church, and uh, I'm a, a missionary from Summit Crossing to the international refugee and immigrant community uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, there are in Nashville metro area about 140 different languages spoken at home uh, by the over 300,000 internationals there from all over the world. Uh, and, and many of these people come from uh, regions and people groups that have little to no access to the gospel where they're from. So we, uh, as a mission team, go to uh, bring them the love of Jesus and the good news of Jesus here and equip them to then share Jesus with their friends and family back home. I, I do want to say thank you on behalf of my family for the way you as a church have partnered with us uh, financially and in prayer and in encouragement. Um, it's only through the prayers and financial partnership of friends like you that we're able to carry on our work full time. God is using your investment in the kingdom uh, and your prayers to further his kingdom both here and around the world. Uh, and so thank you very, very much. And I will share more about that later. Um, but uh, if you have a Bible or if there's one near you, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 3, and hold your place there. We'll be going there in a moment and coming back to that passage, uh, at beginning at verse 19, throughout the message. I am especially thankful for the privilege of preaching the Word of God on this particular Sunday, because this week we celebrate the 500th anniversary of a massively important work of God, as many of you, I'm sure, already know. This is going to be a different kind of message uh, than the one I'm used to preaching, because this is a, a different kind of day. It's very hard to overstate the significance of something that happened 500 years ago this Tuesday. On October 31st, 1517, as many of you know, an obscure Roman Catholic monk nailed a handwritten document onto the door of the church in the fairly obscure town of Wittenberg, Germany. The monk was Martin Luther, and the document was a list of 95 theses in which he criticized the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church for a practice known as the sale of indulgences. Now, we're not going to take the time to define indulgences and talk about why they were wrong, uh, because that's not, for us, the most important part of the story. The most important and relevant part for us today is what happened next. I should have a, a mini disclaimer here that Luther was admittedly a very flawed person who had some significant blind spots in his beliefs, so we don't and must not endorse everything that he taught or believed. Yet, it's true that Luther was right on some really, really important things. God used Luther and other reformers like him, in spite of themselves, to bring about incredibly profound change, both in the church and in the whole world. There were other people before Luther who significantly paved the way for him, but historians point to this particular point, this one act 500 years ago, as what they see as the official catalyst, the official beginning of what we now call the Protestant Reformation. It's called Protestant because those involved were protesting the unbiblical teachings and practices in the Roman Catholic Church, which was the official church over almost all of Europe at that time. 
And it's the Protestant Reformation because the uh, Luther and others were trying to reform the church, not split away and start a new one. The reformers didn't say, you know, I'm going to take my theological ball and go home. No, they, they were coming with, from within the church to the powers that be saying, hey, we've, we read this Bible and what we as a church institution are teaching and telling people to believe and do, we, we see that it doesn't fit. So could we repent and start doing this right? But tragically, the church leaders repeatedly rejected those calls for reformation. They even officially declared the reformers and those who agree with them to be not just wrong, but unsaved. But still, despite all the opposition that he and others would face, Luther's one act of courage proved to be the decisive catalyst that created a movement that has literally changed the world. One pastor wrote, the Protestant Reformation altered nations shaped politics, provoked wars, and led to innovations in science, industry, economics, and medicine. It affected exploration and colonization, the Protestant work ethic, the proliferation of democratic governments, and world missions took shape as direct fruit of the Reformation. But of eternal significance, let's let that sink in for a second, of eternal significance, the Reformation reclaimed a biblical view of salvation, worship, and biblical authority. This recovery led to the redemption of countless souls and served as a necessary correction to the church's beliefs and practices. So when we talk about the Protestant Reformation, we're not just talking about this squabble that was petty between two sides who seemed to maybe care too much about minor points of theology. With respect to all sides involved, we must recognize that the questions that are at the heart of the Reformation, what we're talking about, are some of the most important questions that humanity ever faces. Questions like, where can I learn with certainty how to be made right with God? Where are those answers? Questions like, how can a sinner like me be made right with God? Upon what basis does God offer grace to us? By what means do sinners then receive that grace? And who then gets credit for my salvation? At the heart of the Reformation is the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus Christ. And these questions that uh, I mentioned, they all presuppose a big problem, right? Both sides, Protestant and, and Roman Catholic, uh, Agreed that there is a massive problem between humanity and God. We see that clearly in Scripture. For instance, uh, in our passage in Romans 3, we could look at a number of passages uh, throughout the morning, but instead I'm going to try to just, for the sake of time, narrow us mostly to, to one passage for the most part, Romans chapter 3. In verse 19 it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, so whatever God commanded people to do in the Old Testament, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the Bible says that the whole world is sinful, utterly guilty before God, and accountable to God, and that there's nothing we can do, no amount of works that we could perform to make things right. This is 
Not an easy message, it's certainly not a popular message, but it's the truth that, that throughout almost all of church history, the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians agree on, and I would say, you know, the majority of Christians still agree on this. It, it's less popular now, but this was not up for debate uh, for most of history. All humanity, the Bible says, exists because of God and for God. To know and enjoy him forever. To reflect his beauty, his glory, and his majesty to the world. We exist for him. We owe everything to him. And yet, in our sin, we have all rejected him, devalued him, dishonored him, and preferred ourselves and other created things over him. So, so the Bible says that we have, in a million different ways, committed treason against the ultimate authority in the universe. And the Bible says his law is written on our hearts. We actually, no matter what we tell ourselves, we know that we're doing that when we do it. So if God gives us what we deserve, what happens? That's mentioned earlier in Romans and many other places in the Bible. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is the problem. This book says I am guilty and God is wrathful toward me. And staggeringly, the Bible says that's the right response for God to have. Sin is so serious so, because God is so good. If God is so great, my sin is so serious that God's wrath is right. Both the established church and the reformers agreed on these points. And they both agreed that if we are guilty before God, then the great need of humanity is to find some way to get justified before God. We need some way to be declared righteous by God. The Bible talks about this, again, in many places, not least of which in, in the book of Romans. There's a popular play on, word in, uh, play on words in English that helps us understand what's meant by the word justified. It says, being justified means God treats me just as if I'd never sinned. And that's true, and that's good, but that's actually half of the picture of the Bible definition of justification. When God justifies someone, he treats them not only just as if they'd never sinned, but also just as if I'd always obeyed. See, in, in justification, God doesn't just wipe out the negative record of your sins. He also credits to you the positive record of perfect obedience and love. This is huge because if God can be right, if God cannot violate his own uh, morality, his own righteousness, if God can be right while telling sinners, guilty people like us, that we are righteous, if he can justify us, then he can rightly give us every other thing that we need, every other blessing that we need, cleansing from sin, new birth, filling with God's Holy Spirit, Adoption into God's family, eternal life, perfect joy in God's presence forever. Justification is the legal prerequisite to every other eternal blessing of God. But how is it possible? If God is perfectly righteous, how can he look at unrighteous people and say, I will treat you as if you were perfectly righteous? If the guilty just go free and that's just it, then God's not good. 
We, we would say that about a judge here. You're letting criminals free just because they say they're sorry and there's, there's no justice being done. The, the judge would be kicked out. Well, God is not an unrighteous judge. He's a good judge. He, he must punish sin. So the reformers, they took these kinds of questions to the Bible and there they rediscovered God's answers. And they learned that the good news of Jesus was far better news than they thought. I'm sharing all this about the Reformation and, and some, we'll get into some technical theology here. Not because I like history so much. I, uh, I'm appreciative, but I'm not actually that big of a, a history buff. I'm sharing this with you because I am convinced that the good news of Jesus is far better news than many of us in the church today think it is. The reformers' answers to these questions were later summarized uh, in, by some Latin phrases that uh, became known as the five cries of the Reformation. They're also known as the five solas because sola in Latin uh, is the word for alone or only. And there's a version of that word in every one of the five main points. So we're going to go through those uh, and see the questions that they answer. We're going to go through these pretty quickly uh, because I was told I only have three hours to preach. And uh, then I'll just mention a couple ways that these are profoundly relevant for us today. And again, I'm summarizing a lot for the sake of time. So if you happen to be a historical theology enthusiast, um, you know, just understand I'm trying to summarize and present both sides as fairly and accurately as I can in the, in the time that we have. So question number one, at the heart of the Reformation, how can a sinner like me be made right with God? Or said another way, how are sinners justified or counted righteous by God? The Roman Catholic answer essentially said, you need a combination of God's grace and your merit. Grace, meaning God's kindness toward you, which you do not deserve. And merit, meaning you are deserving. So, according to this view, God's salvation, the forgiveness he provides, is partly undeserved and partly deserved. In this view... A person must do a lot of religious things throughout your life in order to receive and keep receiving God's grace. And through doing these things and receiving the grace, you're actually made more and more righteous. Don't do the things, you don't get the grace. If you don't get the grace, you don't become a righteous person. And if you're not righteous enough, you don't go to heaven. So that's the system, according to this view. All those things that you do, therefore, are building up your merit, your worthiness before God. And that's how you receive grace and keep becoming more righteous. Then, when you die, your soul might need to go to purgatory for a while to have the last uh, parts of sin purged out of you. So it's a place of suffering between here and, and heaven until you're perfectly righteous. And then you can be released from purgatory and go to heaven. And then, finally, on the day of judgment, God will give you the declaration of full justification. At that point... According to the Roman Catholic view, you would be de declared righteous because God had first actually made you righteous. Now, the reformers said, okay, we, we hear that and we, we hear these teachings from popes and things, but, but we don't see that in the Bible. What we see in the Bible is that God justifies sinners sola gratia, by grace alone. Not grace plus merit, but grace alone. As it is written in our text, verse 23, very famous verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what's the, what, what comes after that? And are justified by his grace as a gift. Y'all, a gift that you earn is not a gift. It's a paycheck. A grace that is merited is not grace. 
The reformers were saying, let's let grace be grace and stop telling people that they have to contribute somehow to earn it. You can't earn God's forgiveness. He only gives it to the undeserving. And that is good news for us because the Bible says that's all of us. Question number two. Upon what basis does God offer grace to us? The Catholic answer was essentially upon the basis of Christ plus you together. So Jesus did his part for you and you do your part. Uh, the others there, you know, you might have some extra merit thrown in from Mary or the saints or other people doing things on your behalf. Uh, but, but generally it's, it's the goodness of Jesus and, and the goodness of the individual uh, together. God combines those and says, because of these things united, I will show you grace. But the reformer said, we, we don't see that in the Bible. We see the clear, repeated message of the Bible is that God justifies sinners on the basis of solus Christus, on the basis of Christ alone. Solus Christus, not Christ plus me, but Christ alone. As it is written, again in verse 24, sinners are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The word redemption uh, means to buy back or to purchase. So the Bible is saying Jesus on the cross gave himself as a payment for our salvation. Well, why? How How does that work? Verse 25 says, as a propitiation by his blood. So the Bible uses these terms. I know it's not fun to have a whole bunch of definitions in a message, but the Bible says it. We need to know what it means. Propitiation means the turning away of wrath or the satisfying of wrath. So if someone is angry at you and coming against you, and you do something or someone does something to make it all better, and that person's no longer angry at you, you have propitiated them. The Bible says God's wrath and judgment is appropriately directed toward sin and sinners. But God astonishingly loves those same sinners. And so, in perfect agreement with the Father, Jesus stepped down out of heaven to turn God's wrath away from us and then onto himself. He became one of us, taking on our humanity, and he lived a life of love and perfect obedience that we should have lived. And then he went to the cross and died horribly, not only experiencing, get this, He didn't just experience the bodily execution that criminals deserve. He also experienced spiritually all the wrath and judgment of God that sinners deserve. Jesus was the only human who never deserved any of God's wrath in the least. But on the cross, he chose to die. And he took every bit of God's wrath there on behalf of every person in history who will ever look to him for salvation. And just as he took the guilty verdict and all the wrath and judgment that we deserve, he also trades with us. He offers us his righteous life that he had earned, his righteous verdict and the eternal reward that he deserves. And then because the payment was made in full, as we've already sung this morning, uh, there was no need for him to remain dead under the curse of sin. So God raised him up to new life in a transformed body that will never again grow weak or or die. He's done dealing with sin, so he's done dealing with the effects of sin, so he never has to die again. That's why Jesus is alive forevermore in a body, because he has overcome sin and death. 
So he lives forever as the one mediator, the only mediator we need, the only go-between between us and God that anybody needs. We don't need to add other mediators like popes or priests or Mary or the saints. Christ alone is our access to God. The good news of the Bible is that guilty sinners can be justified by God's grace alone as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus alone, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice by his blood. Glory to God. The good news of Jesus is better than any other news in the world. Third question, how do we get in on this? How do sinners receive God's grace? Again, uh, the Roman Catholic view says, well, you trust in Jesus to give you grace through your good works. So that's an important distinction. They would say it's grace, but you you just receive grace through your good works. They'd say, essentially, he'll do good for you if you do good for him. And the reformers said, we don't see that in the Bible. We see better news than that in the Bible. We see that God justifies sinners through sola fide, through faith alone. Not faith plus works to receive it, but faith alone to receive the righteousness that God requires of us. As it is written, verse 22 of Romans 3, the righteousness of God, which in the context he's saying the righteous status that you need before God, the righteousness that God requires of you, he gives to you. How? Through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Verse 25, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You don't have to earn it. It's through simple faith alone. Biblical faith is not an act of earning. This is huge. Biblical faith is just an act of receiving what's already been earned for you. Biblical faith is trusting God's promise to you that what Jesus has done is enough to save you. When Luther stood for these truths in the Roman Catholic Church, they objected the same way many of my Muslim friends object. They said, if you tell people that God will accept them freely because of Jesus, apart from any works that they do, you'll just give people an excuse to sin. And and that makes sense. I mean, if, if we're saved by faith apart from works, why do good works? <clears throat> what do we do with all the parts of the Bible that seem to teach that, God, that good works are in some way necessary in order to finally enter heaven? Jesus certainly sounded like that in many parts of the Sermon on the Mount and other places. Um, and yet we have other teachings that, okay, says so it's grace, is it works, what's going on here? We respond with Luther and the whole counsel of the Bible that when God justifies a person, the good news of Jesus is that God gives them a new heart with new desires. He causes us to love him, to love other people, to love holiness and to hate our sin and to keep turning to Jesus in repentance and faith. And only those kinds of people, the Bible teaches, will eventually finally be in heaven. Those people who have been changed by God's free grace alone to do good works. But here's the crucial difference. Don't don't miss this. This is so important. Those good works, according to the Bible, are a necessary evidence of your salvation. They are not part of the basis of your salvation. I love that phrase, necessary evidence. if If you're in Christ... You will bear the good works of Christ. He he will change you. You you almost can't help it. I mean, 
You just love the things you used to hate, and you hate the sin you used to love. So, we don't trust in our good works. We trust in Christ alone, and he causes us to walk in good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, famous passage. For by grace alone you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Well, then why do good works? Well, because we're his workmanship. And what, when God works something, when God makes something, that thing works. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As one reformer said, we are saved through faith alone, but the faith which saves is never alone. That is, it's always accompanied by, it always produces a life of good works. Not perfection. We're not saved by being perfect. We just give evidence to the work of God in our lives by being made more like him, by his grace. Biblical faith will overflow in a life of good works, but those works don't save us. We don't trust in ourselves and what we do to save us. We trust in God and what he's done for us in Jesus to save us. So after all that, these last two questions pretty much answer themselves. Number four, who then gets the credit for salvation? The implication of the Catholic view is that God and the individual share credit for the salvation of the individual. If you do part of the earning, you get part of the credit. You get part of the glory. If you and God together accomplish your salvation, you share the glory with God for your salvation. So you would one day be standing there, and and the reality is you'd say, thank you for all that you did for me to make this possible, but I also did my part to earn it. To, 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 for you, to make it possible for you to earn, make it possible, you know? It's, we would share the credit. But the reformer said, we don't see that in the scriptures. We see very clearly, God has done things in such a way that he gets all the credit. We see soli deo gloria, that God alone gets the glory for saving sinners. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. As it is written in uh, Romans 3.26, all this that God has done was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why did God do things this way? He said, I I set Christ forth and I did the sacrifice, all these things so that when I forgive your sin... It's clear that I'm not just overlooking it. I'm not just being a bad God and excusing things that ought not be excused. I am still just because I have justly punished your sin in a substitute. And those who trust in Jesus have been united to him by faith so that his death on the cross counts as our death. We have died for our sins in Christ. And his life counts as our life. We have a righteousness that rightly belongs to us because we're united to our representative, Jesus, who was righteous in our place. Paul continues, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. No earning, no boasting. God gets all the glory. Last question. It says who? What right did these guys have to come to the powers that be and say, you're wrong, we're right? That's, that's an abrasive message. You know, nobody likes to talk about divisions and disagreements and saying that other people are wrong. I get that. I don't, I don't like that all of this is, is about a disagreement, but I'm thankful that there is a clarity here about the good news of God. The Roman Catholic view said... 
that there were two sources of authority in the church. The scriptures and the church tradition, which consisted of official declarations by popes and councils. But as we've seen, these popes and councils and the things that they taught as supposedly up here alongside scripture often could contradict scripture and teach things that the Bible doesn't teach and are contrary to what the Bible teaches. In fact, the things that the popes and councils taught were many times contradictory even to each other. And so the reformers said, no, we don't think that's logically possible. Rather, we hold to sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our final authority. Scripture alone is our final authority. If somebody comes to you with a different message and say, God said this over here. Well, if it's contradictory to what's clearly in the Bible, by logic and good reason and just reading what God has said, then you can say, no, God didn't say that. God said this. And, and we, it's a whole other sermon. But we could add a lot of Bible passages here, but it's clear from what we've already seen. The word of God is a far better message than any other message. There is no need to add anything to the gospel of Jesus because you can't improve on perfection. The message of the Bible is the gospel that we preach and we sing and we celebrate week after week to the glory of God. But I've, I've got to ask you to pause for a minute and seriously ask yourself, have I really accepted this message? Have I really trusted and believed this good news? I have a number of Muslim friends in Nashville, and they are typically very open to discussing with us what they believe and what we believe. And um, I've, I've learned uh, a lot about the Quran, and, and the Quran teaches that uh, when you sin, you should ask for forgiveness, and Allah is merciful, he will forgive you. And uh, it says that there are scales in heaven, and on the day of judgment, your good works will be put on one side, and your bad works will be put on the other side. And if you've lived a life that follows the five pillars of Islam, all these lifelong commands, and if you believe the six articles of the Islamic faith, then Allah will weigh your good deeds versus your bad deeds. And if your good deeds are heavier, if there are more of them, then he might let you into heaven. He doesn't have to because Allah is totally free and he, he doesn't owe anybody anything, but, but he might. So you never have full assurance of salvation, but you know in Islam that this is the only shot you have. Lifelong obedience, believe the things, do the things, be good enough, and hopefully you get in. So we come with our Bibles and with our lives and our love, and we tell them, my friend, the good news of God in Jesus is far better news than that. One approach that I've tried in, in trying to help them understand uh, why that system uh, is, is problematic is this question that Romans 3 is dealing with. How can God be just and forgive sinners? And, and I've asked them, okay, so if God is righteous and he hates sin, how is it right for him to forgive? In the moment that you've just sinned against God and you ask for forgiveness, how is it righteous for him to ignore that sin and act like it never happened? To leave the sin unpunished? How is God a good judge in that moment? And the clearest answer I've ever got from one friend was this. He said, God knows the future and he knows your heart. So he knows if you really mean it or not, if you are really sincerely repentant or not. If you really mean it, he knows that you will live a good life and obey him the best that you can. And essentially, on the basis of that future obedience, it is right for him to forgive your sin. It's grace plus merit. Faith plus works. 
That's the basis. And I've come to realize this, this is the crazy thing. Yes, we come and we say, we have a much better uh, news for you than that. But the crazy thing that I've realized, even before I started really diving into uh, Islam and the Quran and, and other religions in Nashville, um, is that in, in even Protestant Christian circles, that, um, like churches here in Alabama, a lot of us try to approach God the same way. Many professing Christians are more Muslim in their thinking than they realize. Here's what I mean, and I'm closing with this. Um, many of us approach God on the basis of what I call the second chance gospel. We've all heard the phrase, God is a God of second chances. And rightly defined, that, that's a good phrase. I like it. Uh, but wrongly understood, it's, it's very dangerous. And here's why. Um, many of us come to God asking him to forgive us because of what Jesus did. And that, that's good so far. But we ask him, like, if you'll forgive me, I know Jesus made it possible to forgive me. If, if you do, then, then give me a second chance. And with this second chance, God, I'm going to do so much better this time. I, I, I'm going to really make you proud. I promise I'm going to do better. And I'm like, there's this anxiety and this worry is, is I, I really got to prove that I'm, I mean it hard enough. I really got to prove that I'm good enough. And we think, maybe not consciously, but... What we're doing is saying, surely it will be right for God to forgive me today if I do a good enough job for him going forward. We're actually basing our faith on Jesus plus our future meritorious good works. Guys, that is not the gospel. The good news of Jesus is far better news than that. That is moralism. And if you're trying to approach God that way, at all trusting in yourself to, to make yourself good enough for God, hear me, the good news of Jesus is far better news than that. Now, should we turn from sin when we come to Jesus for forgiveness? Absolutely. That faith in Jesus is a turning from sin to trust in, in him. So should we resolve to obey God? Of course, the Bible teaches that. But should we think or feel that God forgives us because he knows we'll do better? No. That's trusting in self. God forgives us because Jesus did better. It's not your works. It's not your merit. It's not you plus Jesus. God saves sinners by grace alone. On the basis of Christ alone. To be received through faith alone. Jesus, as he died on the cross, said, It is finished. Jesus is enough for us. So come to Jesus, even now where you're sitting, in your heart, you can look to him by faith alone and trust that he is enough for you and you will find rest for your souls.